You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Pullman Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. We're going to jump into the sermon, and we're going to jet through this. Uh, we got a big amount of material to cover in a small amount of time. Um, so what I want to do is today we're going to talk about contentment. And um, last week, uh, Corbin did a fantastic job talking about generosity, and today we're going to talk about contentment. And there's a lot of amazing stories about contentment in the Bible, and especially, especially in the Old Testament. But I want to walk through something that I see is particularly interesting um, with the uh, kind of God's law and how his people responded to it and, and kind of what happened as a result of that, okay? So we're gonna begin in Deuteronomy 17, but I wanna pose this question before we read it. Did God want a king for Israel? So that's always the first response is no. And the reason is because when Samuel goes to God and says, hey, the people want a king, they've rejected me. God says, no, it's not that they've rejected you, they've rejected me. But what's interesting is Deuteronomy 17 says something really, really fascinating that I think it's important for us to take a look at, okay? So let's read the passage. It says, when you enter the land that the Lord your God has given you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. So is God opposed to them having a king? God's not opposed to it, but he doesn't want them to just settle for a king like all the other nations. He wants their king to be unique. And so what he's doing is he's going to map out. And so here's my expectations. If you're going to have a king, here's my expectations of that king. Okay. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. Now the question is why? And that's because it's really easy for somebody who's not of our people to lead us away from the God of our people. Okay. And God doesn't want that. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. What are horses? They're a sign of wealth, okay? Don't accumulate a lot of horses, a lot of wealth, okay? And he's going to say this in some other ways, too. But kings don't get to accumulate a lot of wealth, okay? Um, Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. And that's an especially important caveat. Not because the horses in Egypt are better, but because Egypt used to trade us like slaves. They don't get to do business with us anymore. They don't get to use us to make money. You are not to go back that way. Uh, the Egypt will get more of them for the Lord has told you you're not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Now, if you're taking notes, underline that that phrase. He can't take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Let's see if that plays out. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So he can't have a bunch of silver and gold laying around, right? He can't have a big fatty bank account. He can't rest in the security of his money. Not because the money's bad, but because what the money does for him is allow him to take his eyes off of his, of his God, When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that that of the Levitical priests is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life. So one of the first tasks of a king in Israel was he had to write his own copy of Torah. Which, by the way, we had our staff do this last year as just an exercise, a discipline that we did together. It was amazing. Like, I highly recommend it. If you ever want a cool discipline 
for um, how to just deepen your walk with the Lord. Write, write the text. Stuff sticks out to you. It's just different. It's, it's amazing. And he's supposed to read it every day. And if you take that verse literally, it says he's supposed to read it. How much is it? All of it. Every day. All five books. By the way, here's the five books of Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books, because those are easy to read. <laughs> of all, if I had to pick five books out of the Bible to read, those probably wouldn't be the five I'd pick. Every day. So that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and those decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. And turn from the law and to the right or to the left and then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom of Israel. So here's these major pieces. Number one, he's not allowed to have a lot of horses. Number two, he's not allowed to have a lot of silver and gold. Number three, he's got to write his own copy of Torah. And number four, he can't have a lot of wives. These are important. Now what happens is, Israel goes in, takes possession of the land, they, kill, they conquer all the people, and then um, they have this period called the period of the judges. And the judges rule as kind of... Um, they're, they're really localized. They're not like presidents. They don't rule over the whole nation. They're just kind of, they're kind of localized. But um, they rule for a period of time, and then Samuel comes, and the people want a king, and they choose Saul. Why? Because he's just like the kings of all the other nations. He's a head taller than everybody else. Bonus points for anybody that knows what Saul's occupation was. He was a donkey herder. Read that in the King James. It's very fitting for his new role as king. It's really, that's actually a funny joke. Like that's, that's a funny joke. You should laugh at that. So Saul gets killed by an Amalekite, which is an incredible sermon in and of itself. And then David takes the king or the throne, and David is a man after God's own heart. Although there is a phenomenal story about David and his lack of contentment, and it's not Bathsheba; it's when he counted his army. And but I don't have time for that. And then uh, David dies, and his son Solomon comes to the throne. So Saul reigns forty years, David reigns forty years, and Solomon reigns forty years. Okay. When Solomon takes the throne, this is a guy who really is serious about having a relationship with the Lord. He's serious about um, his kind of like position and the weight of it and how, how little he understands about it. And so what he says is, uh, he's pretty nervous. He's pretty nervous about taking over the throne. And I wanna meet him there because he has this really cool conversation with God, okay? So let's read. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon answered, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father, David, but I am only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my duties. This is a pretty mature, insightful thing for Solomon to be saying, especially if he is young, most young people believe they can do anything, 
right? And he's like recognizing that I don't have this all figured out yet. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice. Now, what's the word justice in Hebrew? Who's say it loud? Mishpat, good job. Whoever said that, double bonus points. Although zero is still zero. Um, Mishpah, the word is distributive justice, not retributive justice. What that means is it's not about punishing people for wrongdoing. It's about making sure that you're treating everyone fair and equitably. That's like, that's what God is so impressed with that, that Solomon would want to do that. Will I do what you, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Now, Here's a funny story. I don't know if you guys know a guy by the name of Kelly Hughes. If you've drank a beer in North Idaho, you know who Kelly Hughes is. He owned a bar on State Line called Kelly's for years. Some of you guys are like, yeah. I mean, not me, I'm a Christian. Um, it's all good. Uh, so he gave his life to the Lord through a Larry Burkett series, a financial series. And he got through this whole thing. And at the end of it, Larry Burkett says, listen, these principles are great, but you don't have the power to do this in your life without the Holy Spirit in your heart. And Kelly Hughes got down on his knees in the living room right there and gave his heart to Jesus and then found a random church which happened to be Real Life Ministries and walked in and he's like, I got questions. And I was like, well, Let's talk. And so he starts, well, what about the world? And I was like, man, tell me your story. Here's, here's how he begins his story. He's like, well, I was listening. I'm, this is my imitation of Kelly Hughes. Well, I was listening to this uh, cassette series. True, cassettes. Um, <laughs> I was listening to this cassette series from this finance guy, and uh, he kept dropping all these things, and I, I found out later they were called Proverbs. And um, every time he would say something, I would go, I'd be like, man, the guy who wrote that is like the smartest guy who ever lived. I was like, you don't say. <laughs> uh, actually, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Uh, moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor. So that in your lifetime, you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So this is God's promise to Solomon, is that because you chose so well and wanting to be wise, then I'm going to give you wealth and honor too. And there's nothing wrong with the wealth. There's nothing wrong with that. God's not opposed to people being rich. That's not the issue. The problem is how we steward it. That's the thing that matters. And so what happens is Solomon starts to become really famous. You remember the story of the two ladies that are coming competing for a baby, which I don't even understand that at all. Like, why would you fight for somebody else's baby? I don't know, but um, then Solomon's like, I got a great idea, cut it in half. And everybody's like, wow, you're super smart. Um, or sadistic, I don't know. Maybe that's the Hebrew word. Um, anyway, so... They, his, the fame of his wisdom spreads, spreads and spreads and spreads, and uh, 
everybody all over the world wants to come and talk to him. So much so that this lady named the Queen of Sheba, look it up, she comes to talk with him. And I want to pay attention to what this story says about her and why she came to see Solomon. Okay, so let's read out of 1 Kings 10. It says, when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan and with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold, precious stones, she came to Solomon to talk with him about all that she had on her mind, which is probably a lot. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her when the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built. The food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw my own eyes. Indeed, not even half what was told, was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. Now, let's think about this for a second. Why does she come to see Solomon? She comes to see him because of his wisdom and his palace. Now that sounds like, well, what's so bad about that? Because here's why she didn't come to see him. She didn't come to see him because of the God of his country. She didn't come to see him because of the God that he served. What was famous about Solomon was his wisdom, not that it was a gift from his God. And that's the problem. Solomon starts to use God's gifts to build his own empire. And what we see in the life of Solomon is that he kind of has this insatiable need to build, keep expanding his own empire. Like it, it just, he can't get, he can never stop it. It's out of hand. He's got to keep bigger, better, faster, stronger, which is totally different than the United States. But he keeps needing to expand his stuff. And what he starts to do is he starts to compromise God's commands in order to do it. So let's skip a few verses and let's pick up in, uh, a little further down in 1 Kings 10. We'll pick up the story again. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly. Now that's his taxes. The, the weight of the gold was 666 talents. And we go, oh, isn't that an interesting coincidence? No, it's very intentional. Because in the Jewish world, numbers aren't only quantitative. We want to know how much money is that? What the writer is trying to say is the way in which he taxed people was evil. The way that he began to take and accumulate his money was evil. That's the problem. And what you see is he takes a census of the, of the foreigners that lived in Israel and he makes them do hard labor and he taxes them harder, which is the exact opposite of how God's people are supposed to treat foreigners. That's another sermon for another day. Not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield, and he also made 300 small shields of hammered gold. Sounds like he has a lot of gold and silver. What's the problem with that? He's not supposed to have it. He's not supposed to have lots of gold and silver, not according to Deuteronomy 17. Uh, with three miners of gold in each shield, the king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold because that's what every king needs 
ivory throne. The, the throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. And all King Solomon's goblets were gold, gold goblet. And all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because it wasn't valuable enough. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. On, on once every three years, it returned carrying gold, silver, ivory, ivory apes, and baboons. That's cool. Uh, I don't know why those two. Why not pumas? That would be cool. Jaguar. King, king Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. But what's the problem with him being greater in riches than all the other kings of the earth? He's not supposed to be. And, and the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. And year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, and spices, and horses and mules. Uh-oh. What's the problem with horses? You're not supposed to accumulate horses. Especially not from Egypt. Let's see if that shows up. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities. Megiddo is one of those chariot cities. Um, come with me, I'll show you. Come with me to Israel this June. Well, I'll show you Megiddo. Um, 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Now that's saying something because there's no shortage of rock in Israel. There's no trees, but there's plenty of rocks. Those people have been farming the same fields for 4,000 years. They're still picking rock. He made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. That's a big deal. And cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. No way. That's not where you're supposed to go. Why? Because you're helping the enemy get rich. And from Q, the royal merchants purchased them from Q at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And they also exported them to the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. So what happens is, number one, Solomon starts to break all these rules. Number two, what we start to see is he can't stop expanding. He has to build his empire. Why? Because these amazing gifts that God gave him, he could not be content with. Nothing was ever enough for him. Like when is enough enough? For you and I, you have to understand that contentment is at the very heart of the nature of God. That's why in, in Genesis 1, we see God called Elohim, the God, he stopped creating and that's important. He's the God who knows when to say enough. When is enough enough? Because eventually, if you just keep accumulating and accumulating and accumulating, eventually it buries you. 
So let's continue the story in 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites. Those two are the specially bad ones. Those two are the descendants of the sons of Job's daughters after they got their dad drunk and slept with him. Like, for the record, if the Bible was ever going to be made into a movie, Christians couldn't make it. (laughs) We are wound way too tight. Like, Job's daughters got him drunk and had sex with him to get pregnant. And one had a son named Moab, Moab, and the other one had a son named Ammon. And God says, listen, we don't want you to intermarry with any of these foreign people, but especially not them. If you do that, your, your descendants to the 10th generation will not be allowed into the temple. They're called mumsers. By the way, you know what passage they're called mumsers in? Deuteronomy 17. Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because it will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He held 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. That's a lot. I tell my wife, listen, you're worth a thousand women. (laughs) She's like, you're wise, like Solomon. You can use that one day when you actually find somebody. (laughs) That's funny. He's available, our youth pastor. (laughs) But if you got any good ideas. Um. (laughs) What led, what led Solomon's heart astray? Like, and look at what he did. Look at this. Uh, And his wives led him astray. And Solomon grew old. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after, (laughs) that's still funny to me, (laughs) after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to, his, to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Let me tell you about Ashereth. Please pardon the expression, but this is true. An Asherah pole was a large pole with a penis carved on the top of it. And they would have uh, ritual sex at the bottom of the temple as a way to worship the god Ashereth. Like this is horrible. It's horrible. And, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Let me tell you about Molech. Molech is a large metal statue that had arms that stood out like this. And they would build a fire under the arms until they glowed red. And then they would throw your firstborn child onto the arms. And you would watch your child cook as it was being sacrificed to Molech. How in the world does Solomon get from understanding the weight that God has bestowed on him and being humble and complicit and saying, Lord, I just want to rule your people well because you're a great God. How does he get from there to child sacrifice? Women. That was a joke. It was a joke. Don't write me an email. It was a joke. I don't mean it. I don't mean it. 
But it's, I mean, it's true, not because they're women, because his wives pulled his heart away. What, what was the fourth piece of that passage in Deuteronomy 17? Not a lot of horses, not a lot of silver and gold, write a copy of Torah, and not a lot of wives. Why? Why does it say that in Deuteronomy 17? Why not have a lot of wives? Because they'll lead your heart astray. What happened? Now, here's the dates. Like the dates when Deuteronomy is written somewhere, this is the, the conservative mainstream evangelical says 1440-ish. Somewhere in that ballpark, the date ranges from like 1500 BC all the way down to uh, 1220 BC. Somewhere in that, I will say 1400-ish BC, um, that's written. It's 980 BC when it actually happens. So we're talking 500-ish years later, it's almost like God goes, hey, you should have just done what I asked you to do because I knew what I was talking about when I wrote it down the first time. I wasn't joking. I wasn't kidding. But Solomon could not be content. And so he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Hamash, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. So not only did he build the statues, but he let them worship other gods in his house. I'm gonna tell you this. You come live with me, you ain't worshiping any other gods in my house. Like, how does he get here? And the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Like, what happened? What happened to Solomon? One word, contentment. Solomon never was content with what the Lord provided for him. He had this insatiable need to keep expanding his world. And so what he did was he began to step outside of God's design for his life in order to keep building these things that he believed would make him secure. And it didn't. It actually wound up splitting the kingdom. Like it didn't work out well. I know a lot of people, they're like, man, God, if you would just come down here and tell me what you want, I would do it. No, you wouldn't. God appeared to him twice and it didn't work. That's why Jesus tells a parable of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man says, send Lazarus back to my brother so they don't um, wind up in this awful place. And Abraham in paradise says to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't believe that, they won't believe even if a man raises from the dead. Like you gotta stop expecting God to flash your big miracle and prove that he knows what he's talking about. Just do what he says. Prove that he's God through your obedience. I wanna share a couple of passages from the New Testament. Paul writes these things down and these are secrets to contentment. Okay, first one is out of 1 Timothy. Here's what it says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money 
is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. How have they done that? Not because money's not evil. The love of money is evil. And when you have a love of money and you start chasing that over being godly first, you make a huge mistake because the truth is you serve a God whose streets are gold. Your streets are dirt. Do you believe that you serve a God who will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory? That's what Philippians says. We read that last week. Or do you serve a God who is minimalist? That's not the God of the Bible. I want to give you one more passage out of Philippians chapter four. And we're going to talk about the second most misquoted verse in the entire Bible. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. By the way, Paul's in prison when he's writing this letter to them. He's in prison. And this isn't, this isn't nice prison. This isn't prison like we have prison. Our prison for him would be like staying at the Hilton. Like, this is dungeon, dark, nasty, beaten, chains, that kind of prison. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And I have seen so many people abuse that last sentence. And we pray it as if it's, we're going into this tough situation. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. As if somehow praying that gives us some supernatural, and we, sports people use it all the time. Oh my gosh. And so they all run out on the field, begin the, before the football game, and this team goes to their end zone and a bunch of them pray, and this team goes to this end zone and a bunch of them pray, and they're all praying, Lord, help us win. I can do all things through Christ, and God is not going to answer one of their prayers. It's dumb. I just feel like we, we... That verse is not about God allowing you to do awesome things. That verse is about saying, God, I trust that you are enough and you plus anything else is unnecessary. Regardless of whether I have a lot or nothing, you're still enough because I serve a God who is not holding out on me. I serve a God who's given me everything that I need to succeed and because of that, I can be content. That's what that passage is talking about. Solomon never got it. And not only does it cost him his kingdom, it costs him his reputation, his legacy. His future is not as a guy who shared God's wisdom with the world. It's as a guy who had insatiable appetites and couldn't get enough. I wonder if people looked at your life. Some of you I know, some of you I don't know people looked at your life, would they say that you look more like Paul, contented in prison, or that you look more like Solomon, never contented even with great riches? Just a thought. And with that, we're gonna move towards the Lord's table. So every week we take communion. If you're new with us, um, you're welcome. We have an open table. Anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to take it, but we want you to hold the elements to the end and we'll take it all together. 
While they're working that through, I want to work through some questions. And for those of you that don't know this, what we're doing this semester with our home groups is um, we're going to go back to sermon-based home groups. And uh, for a lot of you who've never been to a home group, you're like, man, this is weird. It's awkward. I don't know what to expect. I've never been to one. So what we're going to do is just give you the questions that we want you to be discussing as a group. And so it'll help you prepare and think through, like, how would I answer that question in light of all of this? And then you'll have something to say when you go to your home group. Okay, and also, thank you, uh, for those of you that are, I'll touch every single one of those before I pass it on. I think communion is one of the most unsanitary things we do as a church. <laughs> uh, also, if you're a home group leader, if you're a home group leader, uh, this will help you be prepared and thinking like how are you going to lead the discussion, right? So here's question number one. What do you think about God's qualifications for a king in Deuteronomy? Are they reasonable? And before you go, well, yeah, they're reasonable. I mean, he's God and he gets to say whatever he wants. I want you to think about it. Is it reasonable to expect that a king is not going to amass wealth for themselves? Like, put yourself in that position. Would you do it? How would you pull that off? Is it, a, like, is it, a, is it acceptable that a king can't amass horses because that's all military stuff. I mean, it's wealth, but it's military stuff. Is it acceptable that a king is not going to build military? Would you do that? Are they reasonable requests? Question number two. What factors do you suppose contributed to the shift in Solomon's thinking as he aged? Like, you can say, well, his wives and blah, 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 but that's, it's bigger than that. Like, what's going on there in his mind that would allow him to shift? And, and maybe think about this. What's the implication of that truth for you? Like if, if you're pursuing job and career and status and money and gain and all that stuff, and you believe that's the thing that actually ultimately led him astray was his success and his ease of life, maybe you should think about that. Next question. What does Paul mean when he says I can, he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength? It's a good question. What does he mean? Like that. Here's the last question. In what areas of your life are you not contented enough right now? Maybe, I mean, there's all kinds of options there. I'm not contented with anything. Nothing. What, what do you need to do with that? Like fundamentally, what this ratchets down to for you and me is really what we believe about the nature of God. Contentment is not rooted in having things. It's rooted in what you believe about God. If you serve a God who is a God of abundance, who gives you every good thing for your enjoyment, who wants to bless you and bless you and bless you and has all the resources capable to do that, then you're free to be content because whatever he's providing you is not just okay, it's the very best that he would give you. If you believe you have a God that's standing in heaven, disappointed, angry, ready to punish every disobedience, um, then of course you would be trying to protect yourself another way. What you really believe about the nature of God is really what boils down to your ability to be content. And I love taking communion on that note because what it tells us is we can never forget we can never forget that following Jesus, the Jesus way is about laying our lives down. 
It's this reminder that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup's a new covenant in my blood. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, thank you for, um, thank you for your provision. Thank you for your promise. Thank you that you eagerly desire to give us every good thing. Thank you, Lord, that um, as we step out in faith and we trust you more, that you show up as a God who has lots more to offer, that we don't ever reach the end of your blessing. God, I pray that you would help us to live a life of contentment rooted in the truth that you will give us every good thing, that you are not holding out on us and that you desire great things for our life. May we have the courage to live in that truth. In your name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Also, if you enjoyed this message, make sure you check out the new podcast from our lead pastor, Aaron Couch, called A Better Conversation. Search for it on our website, iTunes, and the Google Play Store.